Welcome to Millennial Shelter. I'm your host, Yusung Lu. Every episode of the show, we discuss a topic that affects the lives of people today, namely this generation, the one that knows how to rotate a PDF and the one that's represented by politicians who don't. For our fourth episode, I wanted to talk about entertainment and how it's easier now than ever to consume media from a country you're not in, even in a language that you might not speak. Specifically, I wanted to talk from a Western perspective about two things that are growing ever more beloved, Korean pop music and Japanese animation. In short, let's get ready to have our lunch money stolen because we're going to talk about K-pop and anime. To explore this topic, we have some great guests on this episode. In Act 1, we'll be joined by musician and podcast host Shannon Locke to help explain the powerful allure of K-pop and why the lives of Korean idols may not be as glamorous as their Western counterparts. In Act 2, TV and comic book writer Cody Ziegler joins us to discuss which anime series have had the greatest impact on him and his career, as well as the moral code of Dragon Ball Z. Lastly, in Act 3, I'll be talking about my personal experience moving from China to the U.S. and how K-pop and anime eventually become involved in this story. Then we'll examine how engaging with these two art forms can smooth out cultural differences between you and the world around you. Let's get into it. Act 1. Black, pink, red velvet, and the colors in between. Shannon Locke is a vocalist in the band Townland and a co-host of the podcast Ask Me About K-Pop. The aptly named show started in 2018 and episodes range from deep dives into past and present K-pop artists to explaining Korean words and phrases that are essential to understanding the medium. Before we get into the interview, if you've somehow never heard of K-pop, I'll give you the basics. Simply put, it's pop music originating in South Korea and it's often spearheaded by boy groups, girl groups, or solo artists. One of the defining characteristics of the genre is that almost all singles will have its own unique choreography. To give you an idea of its scope, listenership has boomed in the last decade, and K-pop artists have often been regularly featured on the Billboard Top 100 list, if not at the top of it. In this conversation, we talk about the nuances of K-pop culture, the way artists handle gender expression, and the differences between being a celebrity in the East versus in the West. Hope you enjoy our interview with Shannon Locke. So you have a well-documented story about how you got introduced to K-pop. In 2013, you watched a video where influencers on YouTube reacted to K-pop music videos, specifically the song I Got a Boy by Girls' Generation. Obviously, you weren't being filmed at this time, but if you had been, could you describe your reaction while watching this video? I think it was honestly just probably stunned silence. Mm -hmm. But I do remember in that video particularly, I think it's Tyler Oakley. Mm Mm-hmm. At the moment where the BPM completely, where they just, where <laughs> Tiffany like does a little drop and it like the song changes completely. Mm-hmm. I feel like he sticks his arms out and just goes like, oh shit. And like something like that was like how I was feeling. It was truly, I had never seen or heard anything like it. So I just indescribable in every way. Yeah. What about the song I Got a Boy was so entrancing? I mean, it is three different songs in one song, which mm-hmm. is wild, something that I'm very used to now um, in my K-pop life. But at the time, I had never heard of it before. We call them Frankenstein songs on our podcast mm-hmm. um, because it feels like, you know, different songs sewn together. And I Got a Boy is definitely that. But also, like, all nine members of Girls' Generation are so beautiful and, like, different. And they're in this quirky this quirky street set wearing these, you know, hip hop Barbie neon clothes Mm -hmm. doing this very adorable choreography. And I don't know, it was just so entrancing. 
Mm-hmm. It was such a moment. It was a religious awakening. Like it was such <laughs> a moment in my life. It's really hard to try to go back to it and see it through any kind of clear eyes, you know? Right. I feel like a lot of people are aware of K-pop, but they might not know some of the details of K-pop culture outside of the music. Could you maybe explain some of the things that are present in all K-pop groups, starting with like introductions, light sticks, and fan chants? Sure. Something that we try to express on our podcast is that K-pop is an industry more than it is a genre. Mm. So there's things about it that are very different from like Western music culture. And a lot of that is the fan culture specifically or Mm -hmm. the fan idol relationship culture. Mm -hmm. But um, specifically like culture kitschy stuff, Mm -hmm. uh, light sticks. You mentioned light sticks. So Mm -hmm. light sticks were essentially invented by the boy group Big Bang mm-hmm. um, in the mid 2000s, and light sticks are a cheering device. K pop fans in the first generation of K pop used balloons as their cheering device in the mm-hmm. specific color. All groups worth their salt have an official color mm-hmm. <laughs> so that their fans can rep them like a gang. Um, specifically, there's a big event <laughs> called the Dream Concert that happens every year, and the mm-hmm. fans sit grouped by what group they are supporting. Wow. So, like the color coding and the light sticks and the balloons is all very important so that you mm-hmm. can like see everybody but the light sticks also come with fan chants which is mm-hmm. one of my favorite parts of k-pop fan culture where in the song that the group releases the parts where the group isn't singing maybe like a little beat here or the little instrumentation part there are extra lyrics like written specifically for the fans that are mm-hmm. called fan chants mm-hmm. and the fans learn these So that when they are at the concert or at the music show, music shows are a huge part of Mm K-pop, then the fans do their little fan chant at the part all together. And it's like, oh my God, it gives me chills every time I hear like really excellent fan chants. It's been missing from pandemic life and I really miss live audiences. Oh, there's nothing that like, oh man, it just like feels, it's culty, I know, but like, oh, it feels really good (laughs) when everybody's like chanting all the names together oh it's so fun right um another topic that i think is interesting is that k-pop artists are often very worried about greeting their seniors or artists Mm. who have seniority over them can you explain why that is yes Well, Korean culture and Korean language specifically is extremely hierarchical. How do you Mm -hmm. say that word? There's a hierarchy to the language. Yes. So when you are speaking Korean to another person, if that person is older than you Mm -hmm. or has been at their job longer than you or is senior in any way, then you use a very formal version of language. Mm -hmm. And you can only use super informal speech with somebody who is the exact same age as you or has like expressed expressly said you can speak to them informally so formality is really really important and it's also important in business and k-pop is a business so Mm. part of the tradition is like at these music shows which i mentioned there are like four or five music shows they're on almost every night of the week groups perform there's a trophy it's trl-ish with live performances but Mm. In the hallways of these shows, the younger rookie groups, the Hubeys, mm-hmm. are supposed to greet their seniors, their sunbays. Mm-hmm. And the tradition is that they bring them a copy of their new album, like signed, and then they do like an extra formal, like 90 degree bow and introduce themselves with their little mm-hmm. catchphrase and say, like, thank you, please take care of me. And like, mm-hmm. it's an expectation. 
that everybody has to be respectful to those who came before them. Yes. So there's the culture and the music of K-pop. And because you are a musician and being the singer of the band Townland and a dancer who has performed several K-pop routines, I'm wondering if you love the music of K-pop more or the culture of K-pop more. I think the music is what hooked me in. I have always been a very big fan of like bubblegum pop music. Like Mm -hmm. I just like my music to be happy and fun. I like dancing. Like, you know, I love singing a sad ballad as much as anybody else. But like, I think I just always gravitate towards the fun stuff. Mm -hmm. And at its heart, K-pop music is very, very fun. Mm -hmm. Um, And I don't think I would have stayed in it as long as I have at this point if there wasn't like music that I liked. But I think something that's so interesting about Korean entertainment, and it's specifically made this way, is how it all folds in on itself, where say you like a K-pop song, so then you start to learn about the group, and oh, the group is going to be on this TV show this week, so then you like watch an episode of a TV show, and oh, there's another group, and there's a comedian on that, and like, oh, they were in a K-drama together, oh, now I have to watch that, and like, everything just always leads to another thing Mm -hmm. and it can just really weave you in forever and I think that's how I've ended up in the place that I am now Mm -hmm. is that like every good song leads to another good song and yeah there's just so much content it's like really hard to get bored Mm -hmm. I've been like learning a language like I had to learn a language on top of all of this there's a lot of reasons that keep me in it but I do think that the music is an integral part the dancing specifically Mm -hmm. because of course we have catchy pop music here but like we don't really have pop stars who dance anymore and that is such an important part of k-pop basically everyone dances yes specifically on the subject of music i I feel like uh some k-pop songs are very similar to american pop songs the only difference being the language there's a shared language of edm synthesizer led (laughs) instrumentals and even the same swedish composers that are responsible for creating big hits But on the other hand, you mentioned that K-pop is different in that a song might have three or four different genres wrapped up into one. Do you think that there are more similarities or differences between K-pop and Western music? I think it changes. It ebbs and flows throughout time. Mm -hmm. Because just for references sake, K-pop as we know it has only existed since about 1992. Mm -hmm. So... On my show, we've done a lot of study into all of that. And when it first started, the original K-pop was just straight up ripping off like 90s American hip hop, like using Mm -hmm. Flava Flav's actual voice in the samples, like truly just taking it. Yeah. And then at some point, more of the Korean traditional like trot music and Mm. those very like Korean chords started to work its way into the music. And I think there was like a really golden sweet spot where the majority of K-pop sounded like what we call on my podcast, the uh, indescribable genre of K-pop. Mm-hmm. Sometimes a song is a tropical house song or it's a disco song or it's whatever, but sometimes a song is a K-pop song and that's the only way you can describe it. Yeah. And I think right now in the in 2021 we are kind of the the K-pop K-pop is kind of lower cuz people are really online and really into TikTok and they love their Doja Cat. And also the the market has gotten so huge and the international fans actually have power now in a way that we never used to. Mm-hmm. So I think we're back into an era of like 
copying or leaning into Western sounds at the moment. But yes. some people are still, people will always be making quote unquote K-pop. Yes. Before you knew how to speak Korean, did that impact your ability to enjoy K-pop at all? Because I don't speak Korean and yet I still can listen to the music and enjoy it just as well because it's not as important to me and I can always look up the translation later. Oh, yeah. I don't, I mean, I don't think, I definitely don't think it's necessary. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, it was, for me, it was just like a deep curiosity that I couldn't let go of. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think it's a necessity to have to try to start learning Korean if you like K-pop. Um, because, yeah, it's all there. And also something that's different from when I got into K-pop was, I think, because I had no understanding of the language, I just had to wait a lot longer. Yeah for like my translations or like wait for things and rely on other people in a way that I can be slightly more self-sufficient now. But also things are just easier. Like most companies make sure that they have like a fluent English speaking idol at this point. And like when they upload their own YouTube videos, they're already subbed in five languages. In 2013, we would have to wait weeks for that and the video would be cut into nine parts and part seven is gone and you'll never (laughs) find it like that's the k-pop world i got into so i think it's just really so much easier for people now um it's just more accessible (laughs) in a way it used to not be yeah so switching gears and talking about it at large one of the criticisms that you can levy against k-pop is that it frequently presents traditional gender roles however on the other hand it often challenges them with artists who champion androgyny like for example the solo artist taemin who we both like Mm -hmm. could you maybe talk about the term kot minam and your thoughts on gender roles in k-pop as a whole. Sure. Um, so kotminam is a portmanteau type Korean word that means flower boy. Mm-hmm. Um, and this was a very specific style of cute, hot, cool boy that was popular in like 2010, 2011. Mm-hmm. There was a really popular drama called Boys Over Flowers. Mm-hmm. And also my favorite boy group of all time, Shiny, was very big at the time. And they, these were two examples of flower boys. And flower boys are like skinny, slightly feminine men who are like dressed well and like look very nice, like pretty boys, mm-hmm. I think is what you would call it. And then around that same time, a boy group, another boy group I like called 2PM debuted and they were muscly and shirtless. So they got named beast idols Mm. and no one had been a beast idol before. So then those were kind of like the two easiest camps for a group to fall into. Like, are they going to be flower boys or are they going to be beast idols? There's some real Edward Jacob. uh, Yeah, for (laughs) sure. For sure. (laughs) For sure. But yeah, I think it's really interesting because I don't mean to speak out of turn about like a culture that is not mine, but I can for at least say like legally homosexuality, very uncool in South Mm -hmm. Korea. Like, nope, not a thing. We don't do that. But also at the same time, culturally, like boys that are friends, like hug and hold hands there. And that's Mm -hmm. not weird. Mm -hmm. So there's like a different level of affection between people of the same sex that I think international fans really like latch onto and like Mm -hmm. a lot. Like to see your favorite boys all laying in a pile on a couch, like puppies, like people love that stuff. 
And then they do like the boys wear makeup and a lot of K-pop idol boys also wear have many ear piercings and wear Mm -hmm. lots of jewelry. So I think like, quote unquote, gender expression or at least like fashion expression is definitely like not traditional Mm. but like the culture itself like is still very like no homo Mm -hmm. (laughs) so i've always found that to be really Mm. interesting about k-pop and k-pop fans especially that shipping the boys with each other yes like even with korean fans has always been part of it like since the 90s shipping being like imagining that those boys are kissing each other when they go back to the dorm (laughs) you know that kind of stuff yeah. And that's just very I just I like I don't have a grand thesis about it. I just think it's really interesting. Me too. Which is which is exactly <laughs> what I wanted to ask you. Um <laughs> so the history of K-pop is often categorized in waves with the first generation taking place in the late 90s early 2000s. And now in the 2020s we're we're in the third generation of K-pop with more recognizable artists like BTS or Twice. Could you talk about how K-pop has evolved throughout this time? Okay, well first I have to say even though the generations are a thing that K-pop scholars like myself argue about literally all the time, mm-hmm. I have to tell you that we are for sure in the fourth generation right now. The argument is whether we're in the fifth. I think it's too soon for fifth, but it's for sure fourth. But the groups you named, BTS is the third generation group for sure. So it's twice. Like, I'm, anyway. I'm, <laughs> I want to edit this out, but I'm leaving it no, in for don't. journalistic integrity. It's really integrity. important. Don't be embarrassed. I'm just saying it's like a it's also it's also a thing that people like fight about constantly. Mm-hmm. But I will say <laughs> there are there are like you know it's like the the divide it's I feel like it's similar to people being like what's the difference between a millennial and a zillennial or right. whatever. Okay. Mm-hmm. It's like that where it's like I say that EXO is for sure a th- the start of a third generation group and Blackpink is the end of the third generation because everything after Blackpink is trying to copy Blackpink so all those girls are fourth gen like I don't know I've argued about it on many podcasts but point is first generation K-pop was um arguably terrible <laughs> we have like a soft I have a real soft spot for it because some of it is really catchy and really fun but mm-hmm. Most people were just like absolutely terrible at singing, like just terrible. And but it was like this the factory, the machine was being started. And so all of these companies were sprouting up and like any pretty teenagers, they were just like shoving them out. But then the second generation, things like really start just change. And the second generation is when K-pop moves out of Korea. BOA Mm. getting popular in Japan is the start of the second generation because Mm. now K-pop is not just for Korean people. They have to try to make it appealing to everybody. And that's when the spectacle gets like heightened. Mm. Um, And you have your like little international successes, your super junior, sorry, sorry, being popular all over the world, et cetera, Mm -hmm. et cetera. Third generation, your EXOs, your BTSs, we're getting like world domination. (laughs) The groups are getting bigger everybody's way more polished because third generation kids grew up with K-pop idols to look up to. Mm-hmm. So they like trained to do this. Mm-hmm. Now we're in the fourth gen and I am literally terrified of all of these fourth gen kids. They're all too good. They're too pretty. They're too poised. They're like 15 and they're like, mm-hmm. I don't, I don't get it. They're all terrifying. I'm mm-hmm. so scared of kids these days, um, yeah. but they're all so good. Mm -hmm. idols these days or they have these shows there are so many competition reality shows in korea to like put groups together and they'll start with 
a hundred people and they're all perfect and they have to like pick five of them. It's like so nuts. So like just the sheer amount of groups of idols, of companies, of music, like it's just, it's exploded. It's truly exploded at this point. Yeah. So on the subject of groups, a stark (laughs) contrast from K-pop artists and Western artists is that K-pop artists often have to live in dorms with Mm. eight or nine roommates, depending on the group. And these rules are set by the agencies in which these artists are signed to. And there's often other restrictions like diet and not being able to date at all. Mm -hmm. In my opinion, these artists' lives aren't being glamorized. I was curious, what effect do you think this has on how the audience perceives K-pop idols? I mean, I think it can go a couple of ways. Like, Mm -hmm. one, I think it's, like, very inspiring. And it's a thing that, again, like, rallies the fans to spend money or do supportive things and learn the fan chants or whatever. Is, like, knowing that your idol worked so hard for this. Mm -hmm. They trained forever. They left their mom behind to go like sleep in a bunk bed with strangers. And sometimes like, especially like foreign idols came from China. Don't speak any Korean. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a, there's a kind of, I don't want to say victim story because that's not what it is, Mm. but like an under, there's like an underdog story to it where like they all, you know, they all had to work so hard for this that like, you know, makes fans want to rally behind them. But at the same time, like the things like, the no dating or like not being able to have cell phones and things like this or to try to keep them from doing anything to upset these fans. Because Mm -hmm. if an idol disappoints their fans, Mm -hmm. then the transaction becomes like turned around the other way to be like, I did all of this for you and you paid me back by getting married. How (laughs) dare you? Like, So it's like a very interesting, delicate balance. But I think that knowing how hard basically like every single idol. Yeah. Just like knowing that all of them had to go through that same stuff and how hard they all work. I don't know. It just like makes it better. Like when you see a group win their first music show trophy, like, you know what that means to them and what they had to work for to get it or and it also just shows in the product mm-hmm. having groups that are just like, you know, pitch perfect, amazing. And like they do their choreo so sharp and not a thing is off is because they spent seven straight hours dancing without a break. Like for you, <laughs> I don't know. There's a lot of the, mm-hmm. the, the, what's that word? The parasocial symbiotic, whatever of all mm. of it, the sacrifice that everyone's making for each other, like puts a lot of emotional weight on all of there's a lot of emotional weight in K-pop fandom. Yes. I think that's part of it. <laughs> I I will say, and this is without evidence, but in, in the West, if someone's really successful, we will just say, yes, you are successful because you're talented and you get to live life as a celebrity. Enjoy lavish wonders. Mm-hmm. In, in the East, there's more of this sense of like, <laughs> and I'm not saying that this is a good thing, but it because you suffered, you have earned this good life of being yeah, a star and, so and d- also famous. don't fuck it up. Yes. Because if you did, that's all on you and you worked so hard and everybody supported you. Like how disappointing could you be? Like I don't, it's very 
as easy as it is to like lift somebody up, it seems just as easy to kick them right off of that pedestal. Yes. So now I want to ask, when we first met a few years ago, we immediately talked about our shared interest in K-pop. Obviously, you have your co-host Angelic on your podcast, but have you been able to connect with others and make friends through K-pop? Aside from the pot without the podcast, no, absolutely not. Absolutely mm. not. Like, I think it's part of the reason that I started the podcast is that, like, I realized when I first got into K-pop, like a person that had just found a new religion, I was trying to share it with everybody in my life. And I would get so excited. And I'd sit down a person that I loved and show them a thing that I really loved. And you see that that heartbreaking nothing on their face, <laughs> you know, and you know, you're not going to get anywhere. And so, yeah, I had like a few friends like entertain me with a conversation about K-pop over drinks, maybe like, what is that thing you like? But no, other than my bestie and everybody that I've met through my podcast, no, I have never like made a K-pop friend in the wild. It's really sad. Having said that, I've seen the community around your podcast and there are a lot of people there. And so (laughs) connections are being made, even if you can't talk about it in real life, there's always going to be a community online now for you to discuss a specific group or your love of a certain show. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So K-pop growth in the last decade has exploded in the US with Korean artists performing at the Grammys, late night shows, and even just touring in America. There's also the term Koreaboo, which is a derisive (laughs) term for someone not from Korea who's obsessed with Korean culture. Why do you think K-pop has grown so fast in the US? And what do you think draws people? What do you think hypnotizes them? I mean, I genuinely think that it's good, obviously. Like, Mm -hmm. I really like it. I think that K-pop is wonderful because it is, like, generally very positive. And the spectacle of it all, all of the people are beautiful. And they worked for years and years to be super good at a thing. And these companies are spending billions of dollars to, like, make them look beautiful and hire the best Swedish songwriters and make the best music videos and stuff so like the package is beautiful and like i said before there's so much to keep you there Mm -hmm. you get the spark of this one song by this one group and i promise like there's a thousand rabbit holes that you can fall down i don't know like it's very i can't really describe the way that like a good new k-pop thing makes me feel or like the attachment that I have to my idols. It's like a thing that I can't really describe. I totally get why people get sucked in, but I don't know if I have the words to even say. Like, I think it's just a thing that it grabs you. And if it grabs you and it makes your spirit feel alive, like, then you're going to keep chasing it. <laughs> I, I, I was in the target demographic, I think, for, for uh, groups like uh, the Backstreet Boys or NSYNC. Mm-hmm. Could you talk about the power of just several attractive people standing on stage versus a single person? Oh, man. I think it's like, (laughs) I think the interesting thing about a boy group and like why a boy group works or a group works as opposed Mm -hmm. to a solo artist is that there's like something for everybody. Mm. Um, And one of the funnest things about K-pop culture, which we definitely had on the playground during Backstreet Boy era, we just didn't have a name for it, which is bias culture. Mm -hmm. Um, It's very standard in K-pop fandom to pick a bias in a group. Or as we say on my podcast, your bias chooses you. Juan chooses the wizard. You do not get to pick a bias. Like, (laughs) it is chosen for you. It is like a, you see a person and, ah! 
and then you know that's your bias but like having a member that is like your member is just like a fun element of it and there's also k-pop has what we call bias wreckers which is like the other sexy member that like makes you not look at your bias like oh no you're wrecking my bias over there and then yeah it's like also all part of the like k-pop package like everybody has like a role um like this one's the funny one and this one's grumpy and whatever and it gives you like a group dynamic to be interested in it in and everybody gets to pick a favorite Mm -hmm. and i also am just like a big i love a good harmony my favorite group shiny does very good harmonies like Mm -hmm. you know that's a benefit of having multiple people all the voices because of this industry you have also with your co-host visited korea Mm -hmm. was that trip motivated by uh, a desire to experience the music of it more or was it simply to engage with the culture that you have now learned about and uh interacted with online my trip to Korea with my co-host was my second trip to South Korea. I actually mm. went to for my honeymoon in 2017. Mm. Um, and my my husband, bless him, tolerates my K-pop obsession, but <laughs> has no interest in it himself. Mm-hmm. So on the honeymoon, we like, you know, that I think was our experiencing like Korean culture, eating lots of food, doing lots of stuff. But going with my co-host, best friend, person knew that we could focus on dumb k-pop stuff Mm -hmm. so like we spent a lot longer what like we got to do a thing i had literally wanted to do true bucket list stuff Mm -hmm. sm entertainment is one of the biggest uh labels in k-pop and they have all my favorite groups they're like the pretty popular kids like i get it i'm an sm stand make fun of me if you want to but they had they used to have a whole museum in Mm -hmm. seoul and they had a huge like 3d holographic theater awesome and at some point in 2012 i think they made a holographic musical starring some of their idols with a totally made up like vaguely harry potter plot it's a jukebox musical of sm songs and on the stage is like literal life-size hologram versions of like changmin from tvxq and like exo members and stuff and it looked so real Anyway, we got to go watch that before they knocked the museum down. Like, it's closed now. Mm -hmm. So, like, we got to experience that. And my husband would have never appreciated that at all. So, like, the second trip, I did get to do a few more fun, like, specifically K-pop things, which was nice. (laughs) That was our interview with Shannon Locke. You can listen to her show, Ask Me About K-pop, wherever you get your podcasts. If you're looking for a place to start, I've been lucky enough to have guested on a few episodes, and each of those were a great time. Stick around, we'll be right back. Act 2. Running with your arms behind you. Cody Ziegler is a comic book and TV writer known for his work in the MCU, as well as having written for the show Rick and Morty. He also co-hosts The Dark Weeb, a podcast about anime and pop culture. In this conversation, we focus on two shows in particular, Dragon Ball Z and Hunter x Hunter. If you don't know, both of these shows are what you'd call shonen, or series that are typically aimed towards young male viewers. To give you some context, Dragon Ball Z is about a group of characters defending Earth with their superhuman fighting abilities. And Zig and I mostly focus on the differences between the protagonist Goku, who's compassionate but a little naive at times, with Vegeta, the anti-hero who's cocky and ruthless. On the other hand, Hunter x Hunter takes place in a society where licensed, elite members of humanity track down rare monsters, treasures, or mysterious individuals. 
In this interview, we talk about the different ideologies presented in these two shows, the differences these series might have with their Western counterparts, and Zig, as a TV writer, gives his insight on how Western and Eastern animation have influenced one another. Hope you enjoy our conversation with Cody Ziegler. Before we started, you mentioned that your favorite anime as a kid was Dragon Ball Z. Is there a particular scene or moment from the show that still sticks out to you today? Oh, man, that's such a hard question, but also (laughs) such a good question. Yes, I will say, yes, I'll say ultimately there is one scene that I always think about that's probably like one of my top five Dragon Ball scenes. It's um, Mm. in the Saiyan arc. It's when we first are introduced to Prince Vegeta, who is the big Mm. bad for that section before or for that arc before he eventually becomes basically the number two lead on the show. But it's when him and Goku are fighting and they're both firing, they're both beat, they're both their like beam attacks, like Goku shoots Kamehameha and and Vegeta does his Gallic gun, and it sucks so good. Also, it's like beautifully animated, like the colors. Like yes. I think Vegeta has a blue, has a purple beam, and Goku's is blue, and like just the colors complement each other so well, and so visceral, and so frantic, and it seems so animalistic. It's such a dope scene, and like watching that as like a third year old kid, I was like, oh, I'm sold. This is it. This is the only thing that I'm into. <laughs> like I 100% found my personality. Yeah, well, at the time, it was airing on Toonami in in the Mm -hmm. 90s, and it seemed like pretty adventurous programming. There wasn't a lot of, like, gritty animation series or Mm -hmm. anime from outside of the U.S. in general. So I'm curious, like... What made it stand out compared to the other shows that you were watching at the time? Well, you know, it was, it was funny you say that, yeah, because I, you know, I was a tsunami dude. I think anyone yeah. that's watching anime uh, above a certain age, that's how they got into it. But, like, you know, most of the shit that I was watching was, like, you know, it was at that point it had been, like, Ghostbusters or, or, or G.I. Joe or Transformers. Like, mm-hmm. nothing, like, everything reset or, or The Simpsons. Like, my idea of like, animation was, like, it has to be funny. Uh, everyone has four fingers and like, there's no, there's no, um, there's no serialization to it. So like watching this, we're like, first of all, like every episode directly ties into the next episode. Like that broke my brain when I was a kid. I was like, wait, mm-hmm. what? Like I have to watch episode five to understand episode 10. Like, I, okay. Uh, this is new for me. Uh, also it was the first, I mean, it was, it was, you know, made for, for Shonen. It's like a, you know, a 13 year old anime, but for like kids over here, you're like, oh, they're like fighting and like there's like blood and people die and people get dismembered. You're like, this is, I feel like I shouldn't be watching it even though it was programmed at like three o'clock, yeah. you know, <laughs> on like a popular channel. Like it was aimed for kids, but like seeing that, I was like, oh, crazy. But also like it's just interesting characters. Like that was the first time I um, watched a series and like that was like my first time realizing that. I enjoy the anti-hero. Like, mm. you know, Vegeta is one of my, he's like my favorite character probably in, in, in anime. Uh, I, I, I love the character. Like he was like one of the baddest dudes to ever do it. Like when he's first introduced, you know, in the, in the, in the Nemec arc, like he's, you know, he's just killing folks. And like, he's one of those, he's the guy that was like, I'm not, I'm not about that talking shit. I'm not trying to talk it out or like let the bad guys go. If like, if I know that you can murk me, I'm going to take you out. And like, that's what really drew to me. I was like, Oh wow, this is the shit. This is what I'm into. And like, yes, that's been sticking with me ever since. Like, I'm still a huge fan of like shown anime. Like I love fighting anime. I love, um, I love anything that has a big, a big fireball or big beam or people that can like <laughs> punch holes in the mountains. Like I'm instantly into it. Like it's so interesting and so much more, so much more um, kinetic than I, when I'm used to seeing like Superman punch someone in like, you know, the Superman animated TV show. It never felt the same when like you punch some dude and he flies through five different mountains. I was like, Oh wow. I, I felt that like I could feel the power, you know, it was hard to relate. Yeah. It's hard to get I, back. I, I have a huge smile on my face because I'm also reliving uh, my first experience watching Dragon Ball through this. So 
Yeah, I, I can totally agree. And outside of the like incredible action sequences and fight mm-hmm. scenes, there's also ideological conflicts. Like yeah. Goku, who believes in defending the weak, and Vegeta, who believes in like letting the weak fend for themselves or just mm-hmm. plain out destroying the weak. Is there, mm-hmm. is there like a goal or a character or I guess a theme that you related to the most or, or found the most impactful? As f- yeah, you know, I think you know now that I'm much older like I'm you know I'm not 13 anymore like I'm in my early 30s like mm. I, I can look about it and appreciate it a little bit more is that like I, I think you know the really the, the theme if you could distill it down is like um, self-improvement is really what the show is mm. about and I guess as Vegeta gets older and he matures more in the series he also starts to realize that like uh, the it's some it's better to be selfless like it, it is it, you are here for the greater good like he his whole thing is that his 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 character arc is that like he ends up moving to earth um, and, you know, having, starting a family that he begrudgingly starts to not only like, but also like actively say that he loves. And um, that's like, that's his big mm. character journey. And like <clears throat> the idea of, of always wanting to improve yourself and <clears throat> doing things for others is something that, I mean, I think that's a, that's a big um, characteristic of most shown anime, particularly like, you know, new stuff like My Hero Academia is all about the collective good as opposed to like the individual good and maybe it's because I've been stuck inside for the past two and a half years and like we were had to suffer under four years of you know a, a political system that was just about being yeah. as selfish as you're possible ha- watching a series it's like hey you know what maybe uh, I'm here f- my friends are what empower me and I am what empower my friends and also we should all do this for the better good as opposed to just doing what I want and doing it for myself like that's mm-hmm. what's really been it's jumping out to me just like story storytelling wise of the past couple of years is that that's what I'm into. Like I, I like the idea of doing things for the collective good. Um, I think, you know, going too far collective is like you just become another machine, another number in the system. And mm-hmm. I think if you're too individualistic, you become selfish, but like finding that middle ground, that sort of, um, that splits the difference between both is what I've been interested in, most interested in um, storytelling wise. And I think Vegeta is a pretty great example of that where like, you know, he, he is an individual, like his whole thing is that he has pride and he has an ego, uh, but he's also learned to temper that down to, you know, protect the ones that he loves and, you know, mm admit that he does have friends and they make him stronger and just to cover our bases were there any other characters from the show that stood out to you yeah you know like i said i i saw it when i was like 13 it's like you know the the hero of the show is goku like that's the person that i latched onto for the first 25 or however many episodes it was until vegeta Mm -hmm. showed up and like even the first early movies um they were really drawn they drew me to him because he was like oh that's the character that's the main character that's the person you're supposed to like that's how all these shows goes he's like mm-hmm. you know very comparable to superman um you know alien from another world that was destroyed comes to earth and becomes a savior but like as i as the series went along i definitely found myself more drawn to vegeta um mm-hmm. i think it, it maybe not so much so in in current iterations but like you know one of the things that i sort of bumped me about you know any of those characters like Superman or, or or Goku and even maybe even Captain America is that like it it was it was hard for me to grasp onto like the perfect character like the guy that's like so good that's you know doesn't right. really have that many flaws or like his biggest flaw is his strength like I was like it's hard for me to like wrap around that because I am a very flawed person as ours are most human beings so, like it was easier mm-hmm. for me to be like oh yeah this dude's got anger issues or like oh this dude has too much pride or like this guy is too stubborn like it's easier for me to latch onto that um, as a kid when I was like 13 or 14 because I was also becoming like every, like every kid becomes like a little asshole because you're becoming like you know you're forming into the person that you will eventually spend the rest of your life honing and, and becoming uh, uh, building it down to being a good person 
person. So like that, well, that's that's why I really latched on to to um to not only Vegeta but any of those like anti-hero characters or like the the stubborn characters in general. But mm. I, I rode for Goku for the first couple episodes, but it's hard for me to go back now because I just like it, it's 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 just so disingenuous to what I how I view a protagonist in a series and how they should be. So like it's it's been hard for me to like latch on to him. Yeah. Were you able to make friends in person or online through this fandom? Yeah. I mean, definitely more so uh, when I was in high school, because that's what it, or in middle school, because mm-hmm. like everyone would like, yeah, your Pokemon cards and you were talking about Dragon Ball Z at, on the, during recess or, or yeah. during gym class. Like that's what you did. Um, especially, you know, now, definitely later in life, like, you know, I have tons of friends that I just know through nerd shit either playing video games or whatever it was it's much more ubiquitous now like back then we really just had um Toonami was like the main source of how you would watch stuff or maybe you would go to like the hobby shop and buy that the anime cassettes or, or the, the cassettes the vhs's and be like yes. you'd see a preview for some movie that had was terribly dubbed and was like garbage but you would buy it because it's the only options you had and now you have like Crunchyroll and and, mm-hmm. and and every other imaginable Funimation app all the different apps to like watch stuff and like every streaming channel has the things so, like now it's just a, a thing that's out there and people enjoy so like especially now like uh, all the show uh, so I, I write for for tv and stuff and i write comic mm-hmm. books and like i write for genre shows so like everyone in this the spaces that i'm working in also loves the exact same shit like they love anime like they love video games like you saw what i was like in the she-hulk writer's room like <laughs> you know uh, I'm, I'm a guy that will pull out a comic book to make his point <laughs> you know mm-hmm. and like that's definitely the spaces that i've been working in are in the same way too like you know, I, I just wrapped on Rick and Rick and Morty, and there were the every oh, there were two writers in there, Heather Ann Campbell and Alvaro Lundy. We immediately formed a text thread that's just called Anime Bros, and all we do is talk about anime, Gundams, whatever. Like it, it's just like that's how the that's how like my my friend circles operate now. Like, and that's exactly how I want it to be. <laughs> mm-hmm. On on the subject of superhero shows specifically, you mentioned that. Um, self-improvement is mm-hmm. a huge motif of uh, a lot of these shonen shows. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas I feel like a counterexample that comes to mind is Peter Parker's Radioactive Spider, where he's just yeah. sort of given the powers. Mm-hmm. Is this an overall comparison between maybe some of the superhero properties that we see in the West and the shonen series that we see in the East? Well, you know, that's, I mean, I think it depends on like, I think it really depends on what the nugget is. I think at First of all, the first layer is like they're all myths, right? And like myths are supposed to be inherently simple. Like they're so mm-hmm. like you can tell a, a, a 12-year-old kid by a, a campfire like, hey, if you look into the lake, don't fall in love with yourself or you'll drown like narcissist. <laughs> or, you know, uh, if you're given 12 hard tasks, labors, you should complete them. But, you know, or if, if you're if you're Ulysses or whatever and you get off the, the island, don't don't be spiteful and mock the the cyclops or whatever and like mm-hmm. it's just how that delineates it could be this is a know, very well-read 12 year old yeah yeah this kid is an ap english i don't think you understand you i don't think you understand you song he's he's they're, they're killing it you know um <laughs> uh but you know, i think it, it depends on like you, you know it, whether it's by accident which is the case of like most mm-hmm. spider people like peter parker miles you know Cindy it's like you know their their journey is they are given great power by accident and then their whole goal is like learning to deal with that responsibility or it could be like you know in the case of like you know a lot of anime it's like they were born with it and then they're trying to 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 taper it or whatever but like all that boils down to like most of these things are meant for like young people to understand and learn morals and what their morality is Mm. it could be Luke 
trying to find the lightsaber or it is, you know, Kal-El being sent to Earth and learning, you know, how to taper his powers to be one of them or whatever, whatever the, the story is like. Ultimately, this is my long winded way of saying that. You know, I think a lot of those they sh- they share more than they deviate, you know, or mm. they they intersect more than they deviate. And I just found myself maybe being drawn more to anime because of the creative environment that it was built up in, where it's like it's just a format of storytelling. I like guess just a thing that's in the pop culture. Where now, like it's yeah, you can you can make a lot of anime inspired Western shows. Like I think because of that, they they were lent to maybe talking about more adult stuff or maybe more um, more mature mature instances as opposed to being like, oh, this is, you know, we have to, we want to sell Batman toys or like we want to sell, <laughs> you know, you know, fantastic fur toys, which all those animes make m- tons of money licensing too. But like, I think mm-hmm. there's not a fear to talk about a little bit heavier things. Like I think it was much easier to make a mobile suit Gundam uh, then over there that it would be to make one here um, mm-hmm. just because of like the market and the way that our society sort of views, views those sort of stories. Yeah. So to bring it back, Dragon Ball Z, mm-hmm. large impact on your mm-hmm. childhood. And it was responsible for you being interested in anime for, for the rest of your life. Mm-hmm. Now, as an adult, you mentioned that a show you love is Hunter Hunter, which is definitely inspired by Dragon Ball mm-hmm. Z with focus on combat, and they have mm-hmm. some sort of spirit energy motif. But I want to mm-hmm. ask, in your opinion, what are the differences between these two shows? You know, it's yeah, they are direct. There, you can definitely see the influences on on this and 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 and, and Dragon Ball. It's still also it's another shonen shonen anime, so a show meant for like you know teenage teenage boys. Mm-hmm. Um, I think one because I was older when I when I watched it, I was like late 20s early 30s when i watched it i could appreciate it more um it's it's an interesting series because it starts out so light-hearted and so fun where i was like i yeah this is not meant for me it's 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 a little bit too bright it's like i'm watching a zelda you know mm-hmm. I'm, I'm watching link has his fishing pole and he's hanging out with his best friend to go become an adventurer that's what he wants to do he wants to get his license so he can become an adventurer just like his dad um and that's what it sticks with, like for the for the first good couple of, of arcs and seasons, mm-hmm. and then it takes this really hard pivot halfway through, where you're like, oh uh, yeah, we're done with that kid stuff. Now it's become much more mature and and much more uh, much darker than you anyone thought. We we like if you played the first episode of this show and played like any random episode from like the last season, you'd be like, what the, what, what happened? Like, did mm-hmm. who, how did it come here? Um, I think just seeing that twist was interesting, but also, you know, it's a series that was pretty modern. So like it, it had just had fresher takes on things. Like I, I, I do enjoy, um, I do enjoy watching a series. And one of my favorite, favorite tropes of anime of Shonen anime is like, the battle discourse like they're always like mm-hmm. oh i see he has a weak what he uses he has a, a weak feint and he lowers his hand and like it's that so the creator of that series is this guy that created um yu haka show yes and he's a, he's a it's the same dude if you love the yu haka show you'll love this but like he he loves rules he loves world building and like what's really fun about that series hunter hunter is that if basically every season or every arc is just a new fun way to indulge that thing so like mm. they'll have like the tournament arc where it's like they have to go up to a different they have to beat beat a bunch of levels to get up to this tower to win a prize whatever it is and then because the world you know they they have a a power you know it's like you know their version of like 
chi or key or whatever. It, like, it allows mm-hmm. it allows them to imbue things with different properties, whatever they want to do. It's so, like there's a whole season where they just go inside of a video game and like they just play like a card based RPG, and it's just like it's just nothing but rules being like these are how the rules work. This is how the rules within this world work, and like you can stack these cards to get this thing. It's like all this fun like ruley world building that like I found myself really appreciating now. Yes, I'm like yeah, Miles he 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 gets bit by a spider and then he fights Doctor Octopus. That's as much as my rules go, but. Being like seeing how this person does the math is really fun, and like the way that it pays off later is that they start introducing different types of people that have powers. Like these are like the guardian users and blah blah blah. Like they breaks down the math for that, and like it's almost like your birth chart. Like how this like you put a leaf, <laughs> like you literally put like a leaf and like a, a water, and the way that it spins mm-hmm. dictates what your thing is. It's like all this really dense lore that just allows him to like set rules, but then also play that off and have fun. Um, and like I just really enjoyed, I really really enjoyed that aspect of it. It was just, it was so deep and so dense for like something that you would expect like a fourteen year old kid to read on the subway. Yes. Now thinking about it, like when you think of Hunter Hunter, is there a particular scene or even just story arc that comes to mind for you? Yeah, there's there's yeah. I mean the scene that I always go back to. This is I mean of course it's a fight scene, but like there's um this arc called the Chimera Ant arc, which happens pretty late in the series. That's mm-hmm. that's one of those arcs I was talking about where like if you looked at any random episode from that, you're like, what the fuck's happening? But so there's a there's a narrator that happened that goes throughout the series and he's the he's the guy that's like he like he explains like, you know, what a character will be thinking internally or like he'll he'll like explain rules that like this is this city, this is what happens. Like it's you know, pretty basic anime stuff, but like they did this really cool sequence, um, in this later arc where they're going to like take out the big bad and they're doing like an assault. And like the thing at this point is like the characters in this series are so powerful. They move at such a fast speed that like a lot of, a lot of things can happen in in the fraction of a second. So there's a, there's a moment where in like, (laughs) there's like a fight that happens between like the big bad and like the master samurai character, like the old master character that Mm -hmm. takes place with them like in real time and like, you know, two minutes but because their speed is so so great it they stretch it out over two or three episodes and like their narrator is giving this really great backstory like really great details about like in the blink of an like in in a fraction of a second they did they threw three thousand punches and like it feels like that because uh, it's it's just so cool it's such a fun fun build up and like it's a great way that you know the infamous dragon ball moment where they're like you have five minutes where the planet's gonna blow up and they spend like 10 episodes and it doesn't seem justified at all before this one they're like yeah you this happens in like three minutes but uh it's because they move so fast and they're such highly tuned fighters that they can do this it's it's such a cool uh device and it's so played out so well and the action is so cool like it's such a interesting take on one of their powers like it's it's it it was really fun like i go back and watch that scene uh probably once or twice a year it's such a fun a fun little fight scene that does uh, make it more modern, as you were saying, because it like takes tropes that we've come to expect yeah, yeah, from yeah, other yeah. shows and then mm-hmm. and then plays them really well. Something that we've ta- mentioned a lot is the shonen genre, which is mm-hmm. a series geared towards young male viewers. Mm-hmm. This isn't a part of the official definition, but I feel like a lot of them feature coming of age stories. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's like, you know, like a myth, you know, like there are things that, you know, 12, 13 year old kids should watch and be like, oh, this is what I, this is. This is going to shape my morality, hopefully in a good way. Mm hmm. I, I feel like there's a strength to this genre being animated because when you're a teenager, your problems do feel Herculean, like the world <laughs> is ending or the battles yeah, you're yeah, facing yeah. are impossible. Do you think in the U.S. for for our coming of age stories, do you think we try to raise similar stakes or do you think we try to approach it from a different angle? You know, I've been thinking about that for a while. I feel like 
someone much smarter than me made this observation years ago, but mm. they were talking about how a big delineation between um, Western media, mostly like US centric media. So the idea of like, you're born with it. Like you, mm. the first time you're at bat and you crack the bat, you get a home run. Like that's when you knew, you know, very rarely is it like, oh, you try it and you're terrible and you're bad at it. And then you spend years and years and years and years to get good at it. Where I think that's a thing, a theme that you see a lot in, and shown in like I just watched two episodes of this basketball anime where uh, like it it follows all the normal tropes like there's this guy he's, he's part of like the miracle year where all these best basketball players are just whipping ass in like <laughs> Japan and then he shows up for tryouts and then he's like everyone's like oh he's not good he's bad like he's not a good player and it's not like one of those things where like he's hiding his abilities he's the glue guy on the team like so basketball the idea that Google is the the person on the team that's just there to make everyone else look good. And like, they're like mm. the, the most important part. Like they're like helping pass the ball or whatever. Like it's just an anime about the guy that's just not that good. He's just a really good team player. And like mm-hmm. that would never fly. I think in, in a Western show, you'd be like, no, he has to get the most dunks and get the most free throws or whatever. Like it would never be about a guy whose job is to facilitate the team being good. And I think that's a, that's a big delineation in, and Eastern and Western approaches, I think, to storytelling. Mostly, things may be changing now, but like, I, I think it would be very hard to to watch. It would be very rare to see a show in the in the U.S. that's like you're not innately born with this thing. You have to spend seasons and seasons and seasons earning it, or maybe you're just not good at all. And like, the journey pivots from that. As someone who's very nervous when trying new things, I feel like the the, the version of the story where you start out not good at it, it feels more authentic to me. Mm-hmm. Um, does one feel more authentic to you? Yeah, I mean, because you play piano and stuff too. Like I used to, mm-hmm. I used to play guitar and 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 even any art, but like I didn't pick up guitar and start shredding. Like I was trash for so many years like it took so long it wasn't until i was like 19 or 20 where i could like i'm like oh i think that i'm a competent guitar player like i'm still not fantastic but like i can play most of what i hear um and play most songs that i like to play like i can accomplish that and it's something that took me years to get to so like i have that same approach when it comes to like watching those series when like you watch a, a show like um, like Attack on Titan, where like you know, mm-hmm. it's it's these the the characters going through boot camp and like he's not very good at it. Like he's actually probably one of the worst. And he just he goes through all this and he spends episodes doing it. And like then he just becomes competent. Like he's just as good as anyone else. In fact, he's not even the best. Like there's a guy that is specifically dictated as like the best guy that does that thing in the series. And, like to me, that is also a much more true experience in my life where I'm like, I'm not a fantastic guitar player. I'm not a, even a great podcaster or a writer. I'm just competent at it and I can add my own flavor. There are people that are much better at it than I will ever be and that's fine and that's okay and like I think that's a thing that you should also probably get, you also get from these series that you don't get from, from Western media. Mm-hmm. You have a podcast called The Dark Weeb where you talk about anime and its culture in general, but I was wondering mm-hmm. if watching both of these shows has led to an interest in Japanese culture as a whole. Yeah, um, uh, interest. I mean, it's one of those things where, like, the gateway in was just through was was through art, like mm-hmm. the pop culture art, like you know this, um, like anime stuff, like manga, their version of comic books, like and like the music that I would hear. Um, uh, you know that that's you know, and and through like it's like a gateway drug, sort of like how. I guess now our version of like the current contemporary version would be like, you know, K-pop is what get 
got a lot of people worldwide into like Korean culture. Like that's their mm-hmm. gateway. And like that was very much the gateway for like Japanese culture for me was like, Oh, I saw Akira. I was like, Oh, this is great animation. Like, well, what is, what's is going on here? And like, that's what got me into it. So like, I'm, I'm a big fan of like uh, a lot of the arts that I've seen. Like I still love the, the woodblock stuff. Like that's, that, that's some of my favorite. Um, honestly, the accounts that, that, that bring me the most joy on Instagram are like the old, they're like just accounts that just share old ancient, you know, history Japanese art like that's it like woodblock paintings or like mm. all the the street like the street pop art like I was a really big fan of that um but yeah that's what that's what's really drawn me into it like I, I started watching you know the the cartoon shows and then like I was like oh let me expand the taste and see what else I got going out there so like music like a little bit of the history like I would say I, I have a huge point of pride that I uh, even though the show is called The Dark Weeb, we are very much not weebs. Like we 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 we're very self aware of the of the of, of what that <laughs> term means, and like we know the guys are like, yeah, we should just move to Japan. Like you know, they all speak Japanese. They'll love us there. Like I've I've been very I'm lucky. I never fell down that rabbit hole, but yeah, it was been it was a great gateway because like I found a bunch of dope music bands that like I love. Um, I love this band called Shy C H A I or Chia. They're like this weird like electro pop rock band like there's a bunch of dope shit out there um it's interesting you're seeing you know that that lead led to like interest in like cinema like um like one of my favorite movies top five favorite movies is uh the wild bunch this uh part of the japanese new wave um one of the wildest craziest films i've ever seen like this was released in like 1966 or 1967 and you watch it you're like how the fuck are they doing all this camera movement with these big ass 35 millimeter cameras in like the late 60s it's mm-hmm. it's a fantastic film if you can find it i highly recommend anyone watching it it's you watch that you're like oh these guys were like way ahead like this guy's is making stuff that you would be on the new wave now like you know mm-hmm. it, it was crazy stuff like i loved i loved i loved i loved what it's given to me like i love all the art that i that i found um just from like watching toonami when i was 13 like that that meme of like the domino leading you know like you watch <laughs> <laughs> you know you, you watch vegeta power up and the big domino was like yeah, now i'm writing comic books in, in, yeah. in la like that's where it all led to for people who don't know a weeb is a derisive term for a non-Japanese person who is so obsessed with Japanese culture that they wish they were actually Japanese. Mm-hmm. I wanted to ask, <laughs> what I have written down is just, why are people weebs? But but, but yeah. what I want to ask is, like, what do you think hypnotizes people? What do you think, like, entrances people into this obsession? Oh, man, that's a good question. I, I, I mean, I'm sure it's part of something that we see in everyday life now is just, like, people, like things that make them happy like mm-hmm. there's you know i you can't see it but like i have all my toys and shit like around my monitor like there's like an idea like now contemporary like our generation we're like yeah yeah like you want to continue that part of you that is a kid you know mm-hmm. and i think when you watch this stuff also it's very niche uh, or it was back then so like you find something that's really cool you want to find other people that are in the same thing and they're probably just as enthusiastic because it's a small niche thing and I guess on the outside, like it looks cool. Like you can't, you can't you, for like for, uh, this is very biased, but like you know, I see a, I see a movie like Blade Runner, and you're like, all oh, the coolest parts they're just completely ripped off from Japanese and Chinese culture. Like mm-hmm. eating ramen is just like that's just uh, this has such a cool aesthetic, and like mm-hmm. especially when you go back and watch things like Ghost in the Shell or Akira, you see how influential they were on stuff that we were watching now, and you're like, oh yeah, I want to go. I want to go to the place where they invented all that stuff. Like, I want to go to the place and see the references that they used to reference, you know, Cowboy Bebop or whatever. Like, I, I, I can totally get that. 
Um, I, I'm glad that I have enough self-awareness and enough social good graces to not fall into that territory because uh, it could have been a very dark hole. But like that's always been my my thing, my my take on it, is like they're probably sure like they they're really really into it, uh, and they probably maybe haven't done the research to be like you can't just like pull up to like a random a random farm community in the, in the outskirts of Japan and be like, hey, you guys want to talk about Gundams? Like, I just, I, you know, it'd be like, it'd be like if some dude was like really into like regular show or like Adventure Time and like outside of like Hokkaido and then like he just pulled over up to Nebraska and be like, hey, you, uh, bacon pancakes? You know, <laughs> you know, it'd be a very, <laughs> the, 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 the math doesn't check out no matter how you do it. My last question for you is that you've written for Rick and Morty, one of the most popular animated shows in the world right now. Are there... Mm-hmm elements of anime that you're starting to see more and more in western shows or are the two worlds still pretty different oh yeah i mean look any the the, the not well-known secret that i'm sure anyone in animation will tell you is that like, anyone that works in animation particularly on the animation side is such an enormous nerd like they are such incredible nerds in all different aspects video games comic books but particularly uh, anime and, and manga because like most of these people what they're doing like especially if you're a storyboard artist like you're just drawing comics all day they're sequential but like you're drawing comics and like I, I uh, so part of the people that we talked about in the anime group um, one of them like <laughs> they wrote an ep- so there's an episode that came out season 5 of Rick and Morty which has finished airing the season that came out this year there's an episode that's just full of Voltron where they just Rick makes a bunch of different Voltrons, like to the point where like he has Voltrons going inside Voltrons, going inside Voltrons, and uh, Rick and and Summer end up having a weird space incest baby that's named Naruto. Uh, you're like all that stuff, just you know that's that's the people that you're dealing with, you know, and you know, like they're definitely I, I I obviously I can't spoil stuff for other seasons, but like there's a big vocal influence of anime fans in the room and that's very much felt in the show uh and that was my experiences on other animated shows i've worked on like craig of the creek every single crew member enormous nerd like they would always draw like <laughs> they would draw like they draw craig as like vegeta or they draw like you know his sister jessica on like a bike sliding like the canada slide like they, they're all into that stuff it's 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 in everyone's dna can you confirm that in the next season of Rick and Morty, Morty will be able to go Super Saiyan? <laughs> I didn't want to say it here, but yeah, yeah. <laughs> that was our conversation with Cody Ziegler. You can find him on Twitter at yay for zig or listen to The Dark Weeb wherever you get your podcasts. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. Act three. Cancel my plans. I found a fandom. All right. Let's talk about how anime and K-pop allow us to step into the shoes of another culture. And while that might sound pretty self-evident, I'm going to talk about why these two mediums are incredibly immersive and why it feels so good to engage with them. In what's becoming a pattern for the show, I want to start Act 3 with a confession. And that is, I'm speaking from an extremely biased viewpoint. You could probably tell, I love both of the topics that we've covered in this episode. And in order to explain why, we're going to have to take a brief, very personal tangent. So, my family moved from China to the U.S. when I was four. As far as things go, it was a pretty standard immigration story. You've seen Hamilton. But what wasn't standard is that I didn't know any English. I was four years old. I didn't even know that much Chinese, you know? Shortly after we moved, I had to start going to school. But on my first day, I didn't even know how to ask to use the bathroom. Looking back at it now, I don't know how I did it. And I don't remember packing five pairs of pants every day. So, how did I eventually learn English? Well, you've seen Hamilton. I watched a lot of TV, Dragon Ball Z specifically. 
And while spirit bomb isn't the most useful English phrase, conversationally speaking, the rest of the language I got to absorb in the background. Plus, probably what helped the most was that I thought it was a cool show. I wanted to keep watching and to understand what was happening. So from that point on, you sung Lu, anime fan for life, done. Well, what about K-pop? After I graduated college, I wasn't exactly entrenched in a lot of Chinese communities. Or have a lot of Chinese friendships, even. And I understand we're talking about K-pop, so South Korea and China, two different countries here, but stay with me. When I'm in a neighborhood with a lot of young Chinese people, I don't feel like a member of that group. In fact, while I'm watching everyone else speaking Mandarin at night while walking from restaurants to trendy dessert places, I feel like a voyeur. I'm looking on as a spectator, and I'm jealous. I'm fully jealous of a culture I don't know enough about, and one that I can't participate in. Enter K-pop. And again, it's two different countries, but there's not a lot of content coming out of mainland China that's easily accessible compared to K-pop. And what Shannon was saying about the industry is true in that it's not just the music, it's talk shows, travel shows, eating shows. And even though it's not the same culture as mine, it's adjacent. And suddenly, as I'm watching shows, observing how K-pop idols talk about their parents, how their parents talk about them, how they talk about their friends, I'm learning. And because I was learning, I felt like maybe one day I could participate. At least it's a starting point. All that's to say, I'm biased. Both anime and K-pop mean a lot to me. So let's explore how these two mediums work and how they can deeply immerse you in a culture totally separate from where you are. Let's start here. If you've ever taken a language class, you've learned about another culture. How there's different cuisines, different holidays, even some more nuanced points like how it's not rude to talk about politics in France. But if you've ever taken a language class, you know that it's boring. How it's not the most engaging to read about cultural differences from a panel in a textbook. What is exciting is being thrown into the deep end of another culture, where you have to figure things out to excavate new norms as you're picking up things from subtext. And that's what anime can provide. So let's take the show Death Note, one of the most popular anime series of all time, one of my favorites, as our first example. The original series was written in Japan and set in Japan, and the premise is that high schooler Light Yagami finds a book and discovers that when a name is written in the book, that person will die. I won't spoil any major plot points for you, but as the psychological thriller continues, Light uses the notebook and starts being investigated by the police. In response, he comes up with a plan to avoid suspicion. Light is a star student at the top of his class, and because of that, he's extremely popular among the student body. So when he's being tailed by a detective, he uses this popularity to set up a date with a female classmate and crafts this inconspicuous, normal-seeming day. So if you're watching Death Note in the US, you can start to see some cultural differences between your world and the world of the show. Something that might raise an eyebrow besides the supernatural notebook is that Light is well-liked because of his good grades. Well, that's not absurd in the US, it's certainly not the norm. To invoke a cursed text, you've seen Glee. You've seen Riverdale. These shows are so eager to label students as nerds if they're getting good grades. And if that argument is unconvincing, we can even examine the Western remake of Death Note. In the 2017 Netflix version, Light does not have the social standing or the popularity that comes from his intelligence. Instead, he's portrayed as a socially awkward outcast. Netflix couldn't exactly copy and paste Light from the Japanese series because that wouldn't have made sense for a U.S. audience set in the U.S. So why is this difference so important? Well, when I was 14, wearing oversized clothes from Old Navy, emptying what should have been illegal amounts of Axe body spray on myself, I was watching the original Death Note set in Japan. And when you're watching and you recognize a difference in terms of values, you're learning about that culture. 
Plus, you discover this knowledge in a more meaningful and long-lasting way because you've put together all the clues. And suddenly, you understand the show more. And due to your own personal investment and discovery, it's easy to become more immersed in it. And that brings us to why this type of discovery feels so good. It's because it helps smooth out the cultural differences between you and the world around you. What I mean by that is no one is 100% American, you know what I mean? No one's beliefs are 100% identical to those of the country they live in. Plenty of American families want their children to get good grades. And if you are like me, confused about why your family held this value when it didn't seem to be held by the community around you, here is a show where that makes sense. So the values you have aren't isolating anymore. They're not as strange as they once were because you're seeing them depicted in the shows that you're watching. And you'll find the exact same effects with K-pop. To me, the best example of this is the show Hello Counselor. It's a talk show where regular people in South Korea can write in about their problems, and if they're invited on the show, they talk about their issues in front of a live studio audience. Every episode is moderated by a group of panelists, and at the end of the show, the studio audience votes on whether or not the person who wrote in is in the right or in the wrong. It's a real-time Am I the Asshole thread with live feedback. I found the show because K-pop stars often appeared on it as guest panelists. The cultural differences I noticed in this case was the willingness to comment on how other people should be living their lives. In one episode, a person wrote in about how their grandmother refuses to stop working and how she never takes any time to rest. After listening to both the granddaughter and the grandmother explain their sides of the story, the panelists were quick to jump in with their opinions like, I think what you're doing is wrong or right for XYZ reason. And these opinions often have the subtext of, well, because the majority of the country is doing things this way. And this might be weird to consider, but it's not entirely judgmental. While judgment is certainly a part of it, there's also a part that's motivated from love if it's coming from a family member, or from a simple desire to see someone improve their life if it's coming from a stranger. Why is this difference in culture so important? Well, in my experience, Chinese Americans visiting their family are often met with comments about their weight or appearance immediately, like while you're still in the doorway. If you have this experience alone, it doesn't matter how many times it happens, it's always jarring. But if you see this behavior in media, you can start to piece together why it happens. How a family member's comment about your career could be based on the desire to see you thrive. Or how a suggestion to eat a specific piece of meat from a specific dish could simply be because they love you and it tastes the best. In short, I really like anime and K-pop. <laughs> if you haven't checked them out yet, one, I'm extremely thankful that you stuck around, and two, I think that you should. Maybe you'll find parts of yourself in what you see. Whew, okay, we did it, team. Episode four in the books. This has been Millennial Shelter. I'm your host, Yusung Liu. Before we get to the normal outro, I first wanted to thank everyone on Twitch for keeping me company while I worked on this episode. So I usually live stream games there, but I tried a productivity stream for the first time, which is kind of like the antithesis of entertainment, but this was an immense help. Even though everyone was working on different things, it felt infinitely less lonely than usual. So thank you. If you want to say hi, the link to my channel is in the episode description. If you enjoy the show, please consider leaving a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. It helps a lot. Of course, you can also mention the show to a friend if they ask what you've been listening to. You can find the show on Twitter and Instagram at M underscore ShelterPod. Episodes are going to come out as soon as they're finished, and I'll keep you updated there. Our art was done by Jaya Nicely, whose website you can find in the episode description. Our intro music was mixed by Wade Ryan, and you can listen to his work on Spotify under the artist Gold Sedan. 
All sources used for the show can be found in the episode description. Special thanks to Shannon, Zig, Beth, everyone on Twitch, and everyone listening for making the show possible. Please take care of yourself. I'll see you next time.